This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. Got my buddy Ahmed here with Hybrid. Right. It yep. was it was actually put in my calendar as hybrid. And I was like, I don't think that's it. I think it's hybrid. Yeah, that's right. right. No, it's a cool name. Dude, welcome. Thanks so much, Jake. Where, where are you in from again? Uh, I flew in from London recently, oh, wow. um, but based between the US, UK, Europe and Middle East. How much time do you spend here? In Houston? Yeah. Uh, probably a couple months a year. Okay. Yeah. You spend a good amount of time. Yeah. yeah. Have you been in, have you been in London your entire life? No, born there. Uh, lived a little bit in Vancouver. Okay. Lived a bit in LA as well. Okay. Um, so whenever I'm in the US, I tend to stay on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. That's where more of my, my sort of network in the tech ecosystem. Well, you came at a great time. It's super hot and muggy outside. So <laughs> especially wearing a suit, I'm sure you're just sweating through that thing. Really quickly, uh, what, what, what is hybrid? So we, we effectively, we create uh, unique reality-based digital twins of complex facilities. Okay. So we go to um, an oil terminal, refinery, nuclear power plant, those types of, of, of assets. And then we capture the as-is condition of those assets. So we go there, laser scan, um, take video, and then we generate a 3D reality model. And then you've got the ability to basically use that for operation and maintenance day-to-day, both in the field and remotely. Okay. So is the use case mostly more complex facilities like refineries or, or is there also applications on like the upstream side, like with like well sites? Yeah. So, so I've heard some operators who are keen to test it out on the upstream side. Mm-hmm. Um, from our perspective, we wanted to go to the, the, the more complex end of the spectrum, look at the spaces that most solutions are not really a good fit for. Wanted to find, um, you know, prove ourselves there, right? Prove it in, mm-hmm. in an environment that's tough to prove because if it works there, it works everywhere. So what's your, what's your backstory? Did you come from oil and gas? Are you a, you a tech guy who's a globetrotter who's traveling all over the world? <laughs> um, so I'm a, uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by qualification. So okay. I did that at UCL. Okay. Did four years of my master's there. Uh, I actually met my co-founder on day one of, of university. Okay. So, you know, in the lecture hall, sitting front row, he's sitting next to me. And then from then on, we basically did all of our group projects together. We did uh master's thesis together and that's where the idea for, for hybrid started to to kick um, to, to form and um yeah i mean he so after graduating i i always thought i was going to go into finance so i went into private equity okay i uh, got involved in setting up an office in industrials fund with cbre okay in the uk regional yeah and then um within the same i got board of real estate within the same private equity firm they had an opportunity to start buying affordable private schools in emerging markets, Iraq, yeah. Georgia, Bosnia, Nigeria, so on. Um, I got involved there. I mean, it was pretty quick. We went in, it was a distressed sale, bought the assets very cheap, flipped the whole group within sort of 12 to 13 months time. Um, and at that, that point I was free. And in parallel with that, Mo, my co-founder Mo, he was working at a company called Costain. It's a tier one engineering company in the UK. Um, and he was basically building up one of what became one of Europe's largest robotics and digitalization teams. So he's one of two, one of two people in that team that ended building that up. And they were deploying robotic systems like crawlers, 
um, drones and so on on oil, oil and gas, uh, rail, road, um, water, wastewater, all critical infrastructure sectors. Mm-hmm. And what he was saying to me all the time was, hey, you know, I've got this 3D model that I've generated using photogrammetry. I've got um, UT thickness from a crawler. I've got um, visual data from a drone. How do I, how do I, I can't really use, but the guys on the field can't use this day to day. So there's got to be a better way to do that. You must be able to give those insights and the data to the people who are working in the field. And that's when the idea, so when I, when, when the PE fund exited uh, the asset, the, the education business, uh, I sat down with Mo and I said, Hey Mo, look, there's a UK government uh, competition coming up and they're looking to fund co- uh, companies in the robotics and AI space. And so why don't we take what we were doing in our master's thesis and basically expand that to go and focus on building a solution for industrial, um, industrial asset management. When we came up with the idea for what, what is now our clarity platform, which takes the 3D uh, data, the reality-based data, and then augments other data types on top of it and so on. And then you can use that in the field. So it's both augmented reality and web-based. Um, that's that's sort of the, the the shortened version of it, and I can go into much more detail if if you, if you like. So let me so let's address what I would consider to be the elephant in the room. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of digital twin kind of solutions out there, right? Yeah. And so you're walking through the the challenges that Mo is facing, whether it be then or, or maybe even now. How do you guys feel like you are, are differentiating that space and really like you know creating a solution that's not really out there? Yeah, that's a great question. And and you know, in fairness, I. I Think we've been thinking about it since we started off, right? It's yeah. been four and a half, five years now. Um, but it, it boils down to two things. One is the fact that we're a reality-based solution, meaning there's no other solution out there that reflects reality in the way that we do. And if I showed you the solution, I would, you know, demonstrate it visually for you. But we we give the operators the ability to keep their real their digital twin up to date, yeah. right? So it's not a single one-time investment and then you forget about it. And then it starts to deviate from the reality of the asset. We get, we allow you to keep it up to date the entire time, right? So you do them uh, when something changes. You finish a project. The guys on site can do a video themselves. Model gets updated. Drawings get updated alongside that. Um, that's one element. So it's truly reality based. And then the other is um, the fact that it's a comprehensive CMMS, right? Maintenance mm-hmm. management system. It's something that. Um, includes all the way from loto to permitting to key box management to you know all of the really technical elements of managing or doing work on site we we looked at how they're being done and we looked at how do we take the human factors out of it how do we make it more streamlined how do we mm-hmm. take the risk out of making potential errors um, when doing work like that so we've incorporated you know we sort of redesigned the way that operation and maintenance should look uh, on an industrial facility uh, yeah, so I think um, you know I've you, you showed it to me on our call a few weeks ago. So kind of spoiler alert, it's actually really cool. You guys guys see it. Um, walk me through the process, right? So so right, you go out there and you're scanning these things. Is it something that you're doing with with an iPhone? And there's some people that are doing that. There's some people who have more of like these scanning devices. Still pretty simple to use, and you're able to just kind of like walk through and scan. Like how how does how does the scanning process work? Yeah, so I mean, we made it as sensor agnostic as possible. From mobile phones, you could take your iPhone out there, you could take any mobile phone out there, take video, 
um, through to some of the more complicated new 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 age solutions like a you know Navvis backpack that's doing lidar and, and imagery at the same time um, through to you know, the uh, ground based ground based uh, terrestrial laser scanners as well. So we use a mix of pretty much anything. We've even done some DSLR if you want to go super high resolution on the model. Uh, we can we can take pretty much all of that uh, all those formats of data. So it's do you take all the data then do you you guys yourself compile that into what becomes the the 3d model is that and is that something that on the the visualization side is that something that you guys built in-house is that something that you guys are able to leverage existing technology yeah so it's a it's a it's a proprietary um, algorithm we run for for getting the raw data into the reality-based digital twin okay so we we've we've pretty much engineered the whole um, stack from from ground up and that's why it's taken <laughs> quite a while. And there's been many iterations of it. Like, you know, the first, if I go back, I, I was looking at an old sales pack um, from a couple of years ago. And I looked at the, the, the quality of the model and I looked at the quality of the platform. And I looked at it now. And I'm like, hey, these are two different companies, right? It's, <laughs> it's almost embarrassing. You cringe a little bit, but that's a good sign. <laughs> You know, if, if it wasn't embarrassing, then you launched too late, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's always funny to go back. I keep, I keep all of our, um, keep all of our old sales materials. I keep our old decks. I keep our old uh, everything, yeah. um, notes, um, yeah, just anything. So I, I was like, I like to go back and reflect and be like, we 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 we'd made a bunch of vlogs and stuff, and we still do. Yeah. Um, I went back and watched a vlog that we had done in this room. Yeah. Um, like four years ago and we were kind of just detailing behind the scenes of like what our problems were at the time. Yeah. We look back and it's like, <laughs> I wish I had those problems, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like they're just so small compared to, to, to the challenges that we have to deal with today. Totally. Right. It's, but it's that thing. It's you, you don't know what you don't know until you start diving deeper into it. And it's been that the whole way in building the company, we, you, you doesn't matter how close to the problem we, we thought we were, the more time you spend with operators, the more you realize where the opportunities are. Yeah. And so those first few customers, in our case, those first few customers are the ones that really add the most value, right? They're, they're not just customers, they're partners. And you want them to be partners. You want them to be, you know, giving you as much feedback as you can on, hey, this is, it would be great if you could do X. It'd be great if you could do Y. And then me and Mo, we... You know, we're sitting in those meetings together and we go back to the office and we're like, hey, look, what if we could sketch out the product to do, you know, these certain things instead? And, and then surely enough, you know, a couple, couple months later, that feature set is, yeah, is, is released. Yeah. I think you have to have a little bit of blind optimism as, as an entrepreneur to go out there. And because like you said, you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. you, it's very easy to have this illusion that things are easier than they they seem and you get in the weeds and you're like, oh, this is a much bigger challenge than I thought. Yeah, yeah. And it happens all the time. <laughs> so on the so so being reality based, is there some sort of like mechanism of like when things change, or is there like a frequency of people having to go out there and scan things so that things match up? Reality matches up with the the models, matches up with the drawings, matches up with the data. Yeah. So we train the operators up on how to capture video for the remodel to be made. Okay. So we train them up and then they use their mobiles or tablets when they're out in the field, obviously intrinsically safe, depending on what type of facility they're on. Um, and then as soon as the, the, the video is done, the model will be updated within a matter of hours. Okay. And then the drawings alongside that are updated as well. Okay. 
So then once so once it's all uploaded, what is the what is the main use case? Coming from a guy, I've never been in a position to be an engineer, right? right. And so I've, I've, I don't use digital twins. Um, I don't use drawings, things like that. And so walk me through, like, what are the what are the use cases? Like, once I have it all in here, you know, how are you making my life simpler? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I mean, the ability to have all your asset documents, data, and drawings in one place mm -hmm. uh, is super powerful, right? You know, traditionally they were using companies um, have got. Yeah, these are facilities that have been running for 20, 30 plus years. And so you can imagine the mess they have when it comes to looking for information, accurate information, reliable information. They've got a, they literally have a room, a physical archive, where you're trying to go in there and find this A0, A1 drawing, PNID um, for a specific process on the, on the facility. And more than often, it's, you can't even, I mean, it takes a long time to find. And then when you find it, it's not even accurate. And then on top of that, they made the problem worse by having um, we, we call it platform fatigue, right? So they're using multiple platforms just to do one job, right? They're logging into um, some document management system that's got part of the, of the asset uh, documents in there. They're looking at ERP, Asset Master Database, like SAP, for example. They're looking at um, you know, the physical archive as well. And then they're trying to connect it up with a CMMS that's part online, and then the permitting is done off. Yeah, you just have sort of five or six different systems uh, when it, to, to use when it comes to just doing day-to-day -day work. And so we give them the ability to produce truly a single source of truth, a single platform to, to look at and reference when you're doing planning work or executing work um, in the field. So that, that's sort of one of the key use cases that, um, I mean, right, that, that spreads across pretty much everything they do, looking for accurate asset information day-to-day. Uh, Another one is in, um, I mean, in, in maintenance management, mm -hmm. when you're planning the maintenance work, um, when you're planning the maintenance work, you need to know exactly, um, when is it due? Who's done it? Was it actually done to the standard it should have been done at? Was it on the right component? Even there's been cases when you've had the wrong equipment being replaced, um, because mm -hmm. there was ambiguity around it. Cause think about it, they're going from really a database solution where you see equipment name work order and you have no context beyond that like what does it look like maybe the size of it things like that yeah where is it what does yeah. it look like you have no idea um going to hey uh i just log in and i could literally just search for the component and i see exactly where it is um or if i click on the work order i can see the entire thing planned out in 3d step one step two step three so routines Mm -hmm. uh, managing routines and regimes, you can do that completely uh, without any ambiguity uh, in the field as well. Is there any tie-in to, maybe this is a little far off, but like um, like AR, like for, I don't know, like I, I knew I knew of some solutions a few years ago. I don't know if those have, have gone on to be wildly successful or, or kind of flop. Mm. Um, and I honestly just haven't talked to too many companies. We had Baselines on recently, which is super interesting on the uh, on the VR side, I'm kind of curious on the um, their use case. I think is a little bit different. Yeah, um, they're more on the, the the subsurface geological side. But from like a maintenance perspective, particularly with digital twins, is there like any opportunities to do things with AR? Yeah, we we have an we have an AR solution. I mean, okay. we we do it on the mobile right now, mobile and tablet. Mm -hmm. It's because of the computation power. Like you yeah. need um, quite a bit of. Um, 
processing power to make sure the visualization is there, the data is being presented properly, the storage is there as well, because we're, we're, you know, you need an offline version if you're doing AR, because sometimes you get underground and there's no mm. connectivity. So you have to think about all of these things before you ship, uh, you know, production grade products. So we've kept it to mobile and tablet. So the guys in the field, they do use AR, right? So they pull it out, localizes exactly where they're standing using just the camera, no GPS. Um, and then they're moving around and you can see the components in the field, tap it, see where it is in the drawing. It takes you two seconds, literally two seconds. Um, and then you can see the work order you're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, everything is, 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 is really, you know, right at your fingertips in the field. And that's for one of our major clients. That was a, that was a, a, a mandatory one. That was one of the key, um, capabilities that they use to justify the investment, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, they're saying within a 12 month period on any facility of theirs, they can get a two X return on investment. Wow. And that's one of the key capabilities of that in saving time um, and, and reducing the, the potential for errors and so on. Yeah, I always think about AR in the context of like wearing glasses, but I always forget about, you know, hey, you've got a phone with a camera right <laughs> here and being able to see right through that. Like that's, yeah, it's a, like a really low hanging fruit. It's really cool that you guys have, you have built that. I don't know if you, side tangent, I don't know if you saw that Google uh, Maps released their like immersive view. Did you see that? Uh, the, the immersive view on, on phone? On the, uh, yeah, on the phone to where like whenever you're looking at uh, two paths that you want to take. Right. It does a bird's eye view, like fly over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so yeah, like yeah. if, I don't know, say you're going to go for a bike ride, right? And you want to take the scenic route. Yeah. You can go and, and it'll do a flyover of both. And you're like, oh, well, this is the more scenic route it's like it's mind-blowing that's awesome from like especially coming from uh remember remember map quest back in the day and everybody would like print off the instructions you have like seven papers of instructions and you're like all right we need to take a take a right here oh, you know my mom had those it was like hilarious like pre is pre-gps days obviously um yeah no i think that the the, the flyover thing is 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 awesome but you know you the, the oil and gas equivalent of that is a, is a walk around, right? So you set the route and you can do it in, in the solution. You set the route and you, you've got observation checkpoints and you take the scenic routes and seeing is everything exactly how it's supposed to be looking um, on the site. And you, you can verify that the folks have gone and done that. That's awesome. But, so what are, what are the most of the use cases that you, you guys are working on now? Is it, I know we talked a little bit about upstream. I know we talked a little bit about the refineries. Yeah, so so I'm in I'm in Houston right now because of ILTA. Okay, you familiar with ILTA? I don't think so. The uh, International Liquid Tank Association. Okay, so really niche. Yes, yeah. super, super niche. But I mean, every like, pretty much everyone that distributes oil and gas across the entire U.S. Mm -hmm. and even even South America. Um, <laughs> comes the ILTA, right? And they're either members yeah. uh, of the ILTA or, or they just come and check it out. We did it last year as well. And then we've done it this year. And it was, it's been superbly, uh, it was super, superbly successful. Like really, you know, yesterday I sent out 15 proposals after one day of- Really? Yeah. You know, wow. After one day of-, of Were you guys like showcasing the technology there or was you just talking yeah, about- Yeah, so, so I was presenting on the Monday. Okay. Uh, I was presenting with Magellan. Mm. Magellan Midstream Partners, mm -hmm. you know, it was recently acquired by, by, by Bono, um, about how we digitally transformed basically one of their facilities in, in Springfield, Missouri. And, um, 
you know, off the back of that, we had a whole heap of, of, of interest flying over to the, to the booth as well. And we were doing live AR demos showing the entire workflow from here, you know, here's localizing on this mini tank setup we had, we'd made some makeshift tank <laughs> um, that my CTO, brilliant CTO Mo, um, had, had, had just came up with and he did it you know, evenings and weekends. And I didn't even know what to expect, but we got there and everyone was really impressed by what was made. So we're doing this AR demo and uh, tagging observations, creating notifications, work orders, planning them in 3D. Um, but it, people people liked it. People liked it a lot. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, I remember when you showed it to me. I'm like, yeah, it speaks for itself. It's one of those things that I think that once you once you see it, you're like, ah, light bulbs go off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, that's but that's how it should be, right? Good 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 solution should be should be obvious. It should be intuitive. You should see it and be like, hey, why am I, why am I, why did this not exist before? And if it exists, why am I am I not using it today? Um. So, what me? So you guys have been doing this for what for five years now? Mm. Five years. Walk me through some of the challenges that you guys have had over the years. Was it was it building the technology? Was it really honing in on what the exact problem was? Is it the going to market strategy? I mean, it seems like it's practically sells itself. So that that seems like it's going well. And just walk me through yeah. the journey a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wish it was selling itself from the beginning, right? Like it's it's never <laughs> like that. But when you find that product market fit, that's when it that's yeah. when it really started to ramp. Um, so. Some of the challenges, I I guess there's there's two types. One is like business challenges, and the other is like product challenges. Yeah. Um, but I'll start with product. It's a bit simpler. Um, when we first started building the Clarity solution, we we were very focused on visual inspection. Right. We we're looking at drones and mobile phones, and looking at how can you um, use that 3D capability to make inspection more efficient. Mm-hmm. So we built this awesome platform, awesome solution. This is, you know, 2019, end of 2019. Yeah. Um, Just came out of Techstars and, you know, we were picked up a lot of momentum and we had clients that were using this. They started using this visual inspection solution and we realized, hey, you know what? They only want to pay between, I don't know, $1,000 to $2,000 per license per year. And then you had all the other existing names in that market um, who were charging pretty similar to that, but they already... They already had that market share and we couldn't really compete with them. And frankly, I didn't, I didn't think the market was big enough. Like when I was doing the math, I was like, it's not big enough. How many, how many drone service providers are going to buy this license from us? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what is the potential of that? And then if you go up one level, so this is what we decided. We said, hey, we don't want to compete with the drone service providers. Let's go up the value chain. Let's go to the, the tier one contractors. Yeah. So we speak to pretty much all of the tier one contractors. And they say, hey, this looks great. You know, let's tie it into our, our drone division, our robotics division. Um, and they say, how much does it cost? And you tell them and they say, okay, you know, we'll pay you somewhere between ten dollars and $30,000 a year for a license. And, but I mean, the, the volume of them is just a lot smaller. Yeah. So it's a much smaller market. And we're like, hey. So you're running the economics again. You're like, I, I still don't know if this makes sense. <laughs> like, this doesn't make any, any fucking sense. Like, so, so, you know, where is the real money? The real money is at the operators. And then we start pitching to, to all, the oper- all the operators, the majors, and the guys, they see it. They're like, hey, this looks awesome. You know, I can see that this is a, the best inspection solution we've seen. It's the best inspection solution we've seen. Um, but we don't even know what we spend on inspection. 
right? We don't have budget for inspection. I could barely tell you how, what we spend on it. And so we're like, me, me and Mo sit down, we're like, oh, <laughs> like, hey, shit, like no one's going to buy this. Even if they like it, they're not going to buy it because they can't justify the investment. Yeah. So, so I remember saying to Mo, I said, Mo, you know what? We need to go. Inspection is great. Finding the observation is great. We need to go beyond that. And he's like, what is it? You know, what do you mean? You know, doing maintenance is, is a whole different beast. And I'm like, let's just, let's just go with it. Let's just go with it, right? Let's just figure it out together. And then, you know, and then COVID happened and, um, uh, you know, there were some hard times when it was like, when it was, um, we were trying to com complete this pivot from inspection to inspection and maintenance software. Mm -hmm. When we were doing this pivot, tightrope pivot, you know, the funding market dried up massively. And that was a, that was a, that was a, a really, really scary time, but out of, out of the end of it, I mean, we found an operator that was willing to take a, a, a flyer on us and we, we started working with them and they started helping us build that maintenance system. And then we showed it to other companies in the space and they loved it. Um, and then outside of oil and gas as well, we started finding other uh, industrial operators and they said, hey, this solves our problems as well. So we just started seeing all of these parallel markets uh, expanding as well with that. So did you, on the, on the maintenance side, did you have... Uh did you have much resistance there outside of like, obviously like COVID and stuff? Like, was there like, oh, we're already using, I don't know what are the solutions are, like Maximo, I think there's a few other like things. Or is it like, oh, we plug the Maximo into, into hybrid and yeah. just make a more complete system? Yeah, I think at the beginning we were a little naive. We we're thinking, hey, you know what? You've got the best, you, we made the best system out there. You guys are just, you guys should just replace whatever you're using. <laughs> and then of course, in reality, they're like, no, you know, we, we've, we've got 25 years of data in this platform. And we've spent hundreds of million dollars on it. We're not, we're not just going to get get rid of it for this one that came out, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, so, you know, we said now the 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 way we the, the way we resolved that was you have the master database, the the old EAM CMMS system that sits as this layer one solution. So SAP, whatever it is, Info, Hexagon, whatever, and then we've got Clarity as this smart layer two solution. Mm -hmm. So the effectively the user's interface with Clarity and then the uh, layer one solution is kept up to date behind the scenes. So it's two-way uh, two communication, always, always uh, synchronized. So I made the exact same sin. I committed <laughs> the same sin with my first startup here in oil and gas. And so we, we had built a platform for wells. And so the best way to think about it was um, like a CRM but instead of contacts or companies, it's well. It was a really, really simple way to see, you know, well-level economics, least-level economics, rolling it up to like the whole company. And uh, it was built in a way that you really needed to use a lot of these features across multiple departments, right? Which sounds very utopian. It sounds like, oh, it's the perfect solution that's going to like encompass all these workflows and yeah. you have like a single, really easy to use thing for all of your data. And uh, then you get into it, then reality sets in. And it's like, wait, we're trying to replace not just a production system, but like yeah. you're, you're uh, replacing Aries and PhD wins, so your, your type curves. We're trying to replace your accounting system. We're trying to replace yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. the land system. Yeah. And then you get in and you're like, this does not work. <laughs> this does not work. And so uh, I, for my, my, my 
second version that I never really got off the ground. We we pivoted from replacing everything to integrating everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And just through doing this for the last four and a half years, I've realized it's definitely a common common theme of like those that play well with others and that can piggyback on a lot of other things where you're not having to rip out systems. Like those are the ones that yeah. Yeah. that really, really take off. Um, I think I think one of the rapid growth stories that I remember would be like there's a company called Q Engineering and they were a Spotfire plugin. So rather than trying to go head to head with something that everybody in the industry already had, yeah, they built a plugin yeah. to leverage what they already so you're not you're not selling somebody on the fact that oh you need to go and like get Spotfire or a competitor. It's like you already have it. I'm just gonna sell you some of the plug in. Yeah, yeah. And they sold pretty rapidly like after that. So uh, I think it's a really, really good strategy that you guys are deploying there. Um, how, how big? Tell me more about the company. How big is the team now? I know you, had just, you mentioned you, Mo. I don't know if there's any other co-founders. No, just so yeah, just two of us, okay. and then uh, we've got th- about thirty other people. Thirty? Yeah, it's about thirty. Oh people. man, I didn't realize you guys had so many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's about thirty people. So Mo Mo spends uh, most of his time in the Middle East, so he's in Dubai. Okay. And then we've got a um, a team in 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 Bosnia in Sarajevo. And then um, obviously in the UK as well. And then we've got folks, a, a few sort of biz dev um, folks in uh, Africa and in the US as well. Wow. Where are you seeing the, out of all those, like where are you seeing the most traction? That's a good question. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we see most of the traction in Europe and US for sure. Mm-hmm. Without a shadow of a doubt, I'm just thinking about uh, sectors as well. So, probably our cement customer base is about the same size as our oil and gas customer okay. base. Just, and we, we were never chasing cement. It just yeah. happened. Right? <laughs> it just happened. But you know, the two world's biggest cement companies are, are our clients now. Oh wow! One of them signed a, a five-year transformation mandate. They did a press release about it uh, a couple of maybe last month, a couple months ago. Um, but those, both of those are, are headquartered in Europe. Uh, and then the oil and gas is, is a mix of US, uh, UK, Europe. And then in the Middle East, Middle East and APAC, we're looking at par- uh, partners who are going to sell it out there for us. So we've just um, signed two mandates with, with par- partners that want to distribute it out there. Is there, I, I hear all these stories, uh, you know, a lot of friends who are spending a lot more time in the Middle East and selling solutions and stuff. And I'm curious from your your opinion is doing business out there significantly different than doing it in the US or Europe? Yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely different from from doing it here. I mean, they have a lot of um, they have a lot of focus on something called in-country value. Okay. Right? Like something they need to have representation. They need to have representation there. And quite often it needs to have um, you know, a local face uh, on the front of it that's selling the solution. And the other bit, the other part of that is, I mean, reputation is everything, right? So you need someone with a high degree of influence that can actually get you the deals that you want to make uh, in the region there, uh, especially if you're yeah. working with, with big companies. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely, it's it's funny. So yeah, I've heard all of that, but also the inverse. I've, I've seen companies that are, uh, you know, from the Middle East coming to the US and selling and yeah. like their first priority is like, Let's get us a white guy in the United States to be like our PD. They're like, we need we need a liaison to this market, right? So <laughs> that just kind of clicked for me because I can think of a few examples uh, of that. That's that's, that's like so that's funny. funny. Uh, so did you, did you guys, I know you mentioned Tech Stars. 
Uh, you guys did that pretty early on, right? Yeah, we did it uh, 2019. So I, I mentioned to you about UK government. So if I go back a little bit to how the company was um, funded. So the, the PE firm that I was working with and they sold the, 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 comp, uh, sold the, the education business, they wrote our first pre-seed check. And then um, quite quickly after that, uh, the, the UK government matched that. Okay. And they put us in this robotics and AI track. And effectively, they had this global expert mission, like a, sending UK um, leaders, 10 UK leaders in robotics and AI, send them to the US as delegates um, to represent the UK. And in one of the rooms, there was this panel and it was um, managing director for Techstars, uh, who was putting together this space program, uh, inaugural space program, first one that they were running. And there was the, the head of partnerships for NASA JPL. There was, um, uh, I can't remember the other two folks on the panel exactly, but effectively they were putting together this program. And I, I spoke with Matt Kozlov, head, uh, MD from Techstars. And he says, hey, you know, I, I think what you're building is, is interesting. Um, you know, let's stay in touch. And then, you know, fast forward a little bit. We ended up you know, being based out in LA, me and Mo being based out in LA for the best part of six months um, in this Techstars program. And it was, it was fantastic. It was really eye-opening to see that sort of West Coast mentality around entrepreneurship. And when you're building business in the UK or in Europe, they don't really have the same vibe. Mm -hmm. It's it's much more transactional there. Whereas what we learned on the West Coast was this this concept of give first, mm -hmm. right? Like like um, help help the ones that are that need your help because you were helped at some point in in your journey as well, and do that without expectation. Mm -hmm. So that was really important. That value and me and Mo we loved it. We're like, hey, this is this is like a family, and yeah, that was a that was a life changing experience. Um, just going through that and building that network out on the West Coast. And, you know, my co-founder, Mo, he's, he's much more um, risk averse. You know? yeah. When I told him we were going to the space program, Texas <laughs> space program, he's like, he's like, hey, why are we going to a space program? Do we need to go there? Like, what's, what's the point? And I, and, and I was saying, no, you know, we should go, we should do it. He's like, no, no, we shouldn't. I said, dude, this is one of those ones where I'm going to make a recommendation and I'll really stand by it. And you'll thank me later. And he's like, you know, reluctantly goes out there. And then we come back and I say, what do you think? He said, that was the best thing we ever did. <laughs> that was the best thing we ever did. What were we some of like the, the, the key takeaways there? I just learned so much, really. Like the, the, the program is like three months and the first month is, they called it Mental Madness. I think they changed the name now. But they flew out like 200 uh, mentors from around the world, former founders, investors, um, uh, just advisors, corporate uh, executives as well. Mm -hmm. And you just get to, you know, test out your business thinking on them, the business idea on them, and they will challenge you and you come out of, out of the end of that month with you know, a thousand data points on feedback from people that have built stuff before yeah, uh, and done it successfully. And then you use that as a, you start to build your own framework for what, you know, what you need to build a successful company. And out of the back of, off the back of that was when we realized, hey, we need to pivot from inspection to a much more valuable solution. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really thanks to them on that. And then the, the, the other parts are like teaching you how to, um, teaching frameworks and tools on how to build, build startup and teaching how to pitch and things like that. 
sketches. I remember early on in my entrepreneurial journey, I think it was, uh, there was a lot of naivety. Um, just thinking, I don't know, just a ton of ambition and just being like, oh, I can do anything. And um, yeah, I remember, I remember we, I had applied to like a few incubators and accelerators and stuff with, with various startups that we had done and never, never got into the ones that I wanted to get into, like the tech stars yeah, yeah, or the white yeah. combinator yeah. or something like that. But, and I think I discounted the value early on, but I think having, having done this for the last decade, I think it definitely could have shortened the learning curve, especially in just getting access to, to more founders earlier on. Yeah. I think that when I think of like key moments throughout my career that have like really reshaped the way that I think about certain things, it was like always conversations with like other founders, yeah. you know, who've, probably done pretty well for themselves or or it was a, a post-mortem or it was like hey yeah. i've done something to avoid this mistake you know kind of at all costs and kind of learning from their from their challenges there so you know i uh i look back and i think that's one of the few things that i think i would do differently would be would be to try to try to participate yeah. in something like that and surround yourself you know i i definitely believe that not all of those programs are created equal i think that mm -hmm. there's it's just like um, anything else, you know, universities or, or whatever. But, you know, you've got, you've got some that are just really, really, really high caliber where they're obviously investing heavily into those programs. Techstars being, yeah, yeah. being up there yeah. for sure. So it's really cool to hear. Um, so af after that, did you guys, did, I mean, I know you got your first, uh, you know, few checks of funding um, that way. Did you guys just continue to just grow that way? Or did you guys go raise more funding or? So, um, there was a round that was coming together just at the beginning of just pre-COVID. Great time. Uh, yeah, yeah, really, really pre great time. I was, I was in, um, I was doing the roadshow, right? New York, Houston, LA, San Francisco. And um, we recognize, you know, we're talking about integrations. We recognize one of the partners we needed to integrate with was SAP. Mm -hmm. So um, they were, they were running this like uh, program to help startup enablements, partnership enablements. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was in Houston at the time, uh, with one of my, one of my colleagues and they said, SAP COO reached out and he said, Hey, I'm in Tokyo right now. Um, you know, if you can, if you can come and, and present to us, uh, tomorrow or the day, in two days time, you know, we can probably, um, fast track the, the partnership. I said, okay. <laughs> And I said to my colleague, I said, there's no, there's no way in hell I'm going to Tokyo in, in two days time. <laughs> and, you know, it's one meeting, right? It's, it's one hour, one hour and a half. And he's like, you know, you're going to get on the plane, right? I said, no way I'm not. He said, you know, you're getting on the plane. <laughs> and then in the end, <laughs> we booked the flight and then, you know, I get on the plane within sort of a it's a long hours. flight too, isn't it? Yeah, I it was Houston to LA, which was about three hours, and then yeah. LA to Tokyo, which was eleven hours. Oh, I think it was rough. Eleven or twelve hours. Yeah, yeah. Didn't get any sleep. Landed at seven a.m. Meeting was at twelve, and I was prepping the presentation on the flight. <laughs> prepping the presentation on the flight. Got there at twelve. I felt horrific. Anyway, somehow managed to go get through it, and then by about six p.m., uh, flew back. Oh to LA, to LA, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> flew back to LA and then carried on the roadshow, LA, San Francisco. But when I was in, when I was in uh, Tokyo, there were 100 confirmed COVID cases in Japan. Mm. 
And I'm sitting. And that was, this was like really, really early on, right? So that was like a big Feb, number. Feb, March 2020. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. People didn't know what COVID was really in yeah. the rest of the world at this point. And I'm sitting in the airport about to board the plane and I'm seeing how they're checking um, if people have, have any symptoms. And it's just, it's, they're asking, right? The flight attendant is, is asking, saying, do you have any of these symptoms? And everyone, of course, everyone's saying, no, I'm fine. And then I'm, I'm thinking, when I get to, when I was in LA, I was like, I need to get the, I need to get back home. I need to get out of here. This is going to go far and wide yeah. and I need to get back home. So I, I got back to London. We had commitments for the round. Everything looked like it was, it was going smoothly. And then, um, had this lunch meeting in Paris. I went to Paris on the Eurostar, you know, two hours, two hours back, same day. Then I went, went to bed that night and I was wiped out. For like four weeks, I no, was you got out. it. You were one of the first ones. Yeah, and I was calling. I was calling <laughs> to test me every day. I'm like, yeah. test me. They said, yeah, we're coming. Yeah, test me. Yeah, we're coming. They never came, and I was wiped out for four weeks. I had light sensitivity. I couldn't open my laptop. I couldn't do anything. I was like, and I could. Just, I was feeling guilt at the same time. I'm like, I can feel all the momentum I built dissipating. Yeah, and then of course I get on a call with the with the GPs from the fund that made a commit to lead the round and, and, uh, and they say, Hey, you know, given the market conditions, we want to see three, four, five more deals. I'm like, I'm like, you guys knew we were at the end of runway. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you're, you're moving the goalposts and they said, yeah, you know, that's, that is what it is. And so we had to get really creative, really, really creative to go and, um, you know, keep the, the team. It was, a, it was about 10, 10 people at that that point in time yeah i get really creative to, to keep the 10 people on board and i mean it was it went from bad to worse to worse to worse for like 10 months before everything got solved what do you feel like was the number one thing you kind of attributed to the perseverance that you guys had during those 10 months because i can relate man we've we've had challenging challenging times um probably more than people would would know you know you, you continue to put on your game face you show up to work you yeah, do yeah, things yeah. and you know, you're putting the whole company on your back personally and, you know, I'm really going all in. And I don't think a lot of people realize just like how stressful, yeah. you know, that can be. But it's like when you have that conviction, yeah. that, you know, I've got something good here. Like you're staring down the barrel of like, oh, I've got like four weeks of cash left. <laughs> like you get creative and you just make shit happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's what separates the the wheat from the chaff. And it's really... I think entrepreneurship is just an endurance race. I think that you know, as long as you just keep getting up, yeah, I think you can eventually win. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've had disproportionately more failures and successes <laughs> at this point, and it's just like you got to be a cockroach, yeah, and yeah. you just got to be like unkillable. And then I think that you can you can ultimately get to where you want to be. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree with that completely. Right, and and yeah, most of most of our success is is completely, you know, you you have a plan, and then. The, the 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 real wins come from things that you never imagined, right? And then you look back and you trace it to how it happened. And yeah, like, of course, right? It makes it make, kind of makes sense then. But uh, you know, your, your question about is there anything I put it down to? I mean, same thing. I'm I'm just I'm just stubborn. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm just. I think you have to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you have to be stubborn whenever you uh, whenever you're founding a startup. You have to be like, nah, this is this is gonna work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just like. Even when it's really tough, I never consider, like, it's just not an option 
yeah to not exist yeah. you know what i mean it's never been like hey you know what maybe it's the best thing to do it's never even crossed my mind it's like i know we're going to find a way to do this and then you just need everyone else to support the team support yeah to go and ride the wave and yeah you know that's <laughs> but to, to to your point right it's uh a lot of a lot of business building and this was one of the other bits about textiles was when you spoke with successful founders there would be these sessions that they had where they gave you the really raw crude version of of their journey the bit that's not publicized and almost every one of them had at least had at least one moment where they should not have should not have existed after that oh every single one had at least one of them mm-hmm. and you know it's it's just part of the part of the journey right yeah. it's part of the journey of building and that's 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 the the, the hat that you the, the journey you choose to go down um but no yeah i enjoy it it's yeah. uh <laughs> you have to be a masochist you have to enjoy uh the punishment but it's like there's just different kinds of there's different kinds of hard there's like this hard but i think what would be harder for me at least the way that i'm wired would be to to hang it up mm. and say i'm gonna go get a job yeah right because yeah. i would live I don't know, like entrepreneurship for me is like, it's like oxygen, man. And it's like anytime, yeah, it's just literally not an option for me just to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to like go get a job somewhere. Even if it's like a, the greatest paying job in the world, yeah. I think I would, I just really struggle within the, the confines. I'm unemployable. Yeah. So I feel so, you. I'm the same. <laughs> so that's, so that to me is significantly harder than the hardest the thing in entrepreneurship, you know, of, of not having that, um, I don't know, just being the master of your own destiny and being able to create, create from nothing, something that yeah. changes the world, makes the world better. I think that's the, the gratification that we, that we look for as entrepreneurs. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, you know, for, for me, it's been, I've been wanting to build it since I was, you know, a kid yeah. building or selling something the, the entire way. And I was the same way. I thought that it, being an inventor was yeah. like that because I would I entrepreneur I didn't know any business owners I didn't know any entrepreneurs right yeah, yeah. so as a kid I was always creating things I was always like inventing stuff and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that should have been like an early marker yeah. of uh, me wanting to do startup life yeah that's one of the, that's one of the things they look for though right and VCs they they look for have you been building for, for the best part of your life have you been looking to go and um, create value in some way do you want to create um, and if you've done it historically, then it's a sign that you want to keep on doing it going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So your whole story about VCs and them being like, you know, hey, them knowing you've got a certain amount of runway and they're being like, ah, oh, you can only show the luck. I can't tell you just how many just VC stories that, that we have as well. And then I've heard. <laughs> and I think early on, I, I feel like there was this... Uh, I don't know. Like you, you see so many founders that go on and, and they, you know, become successful and they're like, Oh, I'm going to go do like the VC thing. That's like yeah. the cool thing to do. Yeah. And that is like, I don't want to, do, I don't want to no. do, I thought I wanted to do that at one point in time. I don't want to do that. Cause you, I mean, you're just a glorified uh, finance guy and uh, it's soul sucking, isn't it? To raise money from some of these VCs sometimes. Yeah, especially you're pitching your baby, and and especially when you get to somebody who's just like they just don't get it, they don't understand. You're having trying to convince them that your baby's pretty, and that <laughs> you are going to be successful, and it's just I don't know. It's hard not to like develop a chip on your shoulder over time or become jaded 
through the process of talking to yeah. hundreds and hundreds of VCs. Yeah, I think I think selling selling product and selling equity are, are two different yeah two different modes, right? And most honestly, I like after that experience, I I said, you know what? Let's put our heads down. Let's let's work only with people that we we know and we trust, and let's make sure that they're yeah. strategically involved, um, and that I can learn from them and so on. And I'm going to just focus on selling shit, mm -hmm. right? I'm just going to focus on revenue. I'm going to focus on winning accounts. That's kind of capital. It's yeah, non-dilutive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's also the. I mean, that's the lifeblood of a of a business, right? Yeah. I mean, if you don't have if you don't have revenue, you don't have customers. You don't have people that want your product. You have a hobby, a right, very expensive right, hobby. Right. If you don't have revenue, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the other thing that it did was it forced like running that lean forced us to find a model that was profitable from the beginning, right? It had to work. The pricing had to work. There was none of this, hey, you know what? You know, some sometimes startups are saying, we've, they're naming big names and they're saying there are customers and then you mm -hmm. ask them what's the contract value and they say zero, yeah. right? Or like 10K because it's a, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's some nominal fee. But that's not what we wanted to build. We wanted to build something where we proved the product market fit worked, the pricing as well as the product market fit worked. And then we want to just, we want the right capital to go and pour, uh, you know, fuel on the flame. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've been avoiding as much as I can uh, investor discussions. The only investors we brought on are former founders um, who've got energy, energy investments or energy experience. So one of them sold, uh, had a really successful exit, sold his company to Accenture okay. here in Houston. And then the other one, um, started a, a major international oil and gas company, um, sold it to, to, to Brookfield Energy, a oh, private wow. equity firm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, big believer in me and, and the team and, and, and the company, and put, put a check in as well. And I mean, those type of relationships I value a lot. Um, yeah, and I, I will say that there are definitely some VCs who um, who are really value adding team players, roll up their sleeves, get in the trenches with you. And I'm talking to, 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 to a couple of them right now, um, just co sort of coincidentally. Um, and you know, they're wanting to, to get involved and, and, and lead the next round that's coming up. Um, again, I mean, it's not been a planned round. It's yeah. just sort of happening. And then there's a, there's a, a customer with a venture capital arm that wants to get involved in that as well. So it's, you know. I think as long as you have the right lead, as long as the right person who's sitting on the board, as long as you have the right, mm -hmm. the right partner to go and work with on that front, the sort of rest of it, as long as it's not complacent, you know, difficult yeah. or, or high maintenance capital, um, it's, it'll, it'll be worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the right investors and, and, and partners and backers can, can really make, make or break you, to be honest with you. And, but if Absolutely. you find the right partners, um, we've, we've got some guys that have supported us, um, over the years and, and, Love them, love them to death. And yeah. They're like they're a great sounding board. They're yeah. they believe in us. Um, yeah, they're just always there to help yeah. any, way, any way possible. And so yeah, find find some find some guys who really right. just believe in they believe in us as founders, uh, kind of first and foremost, and they just trust our judgment for the business, which yeah. is uh, I think really important. There's yeah. no playbook for what we do. That's key. Uh, so got to kind of come with an open mind and be creative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, s similar thing here. I think. I think there's a lot of playbooks for consumer consumer startups, consumer play startups. 
um, and even some B2B. But I think when it comes to enterprise, like selling to operators and mm -hmm. enterprise businesses, that is hard. Yeah, right? that's super hard. And I wish there were more playbooks or more people that could go and um, say, hey, you know, this is exactly the right thing to do. But I think at some point in time, I'll go back a, a year or two, we were like figuring it out. We're like, hey, does this, is this the right way to do this? And now it, like, it, it, it works now, right? The proof is in the pudding. Mm -hmm. and, and we get to go and enjoy that, having spent the time building that framework up ourselves. Um, yeah. It's, it, it, it's just like that, right? Building, building enterprise companies, mm -hmm. <laughs> never a smooth job. Yeah, it's, 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 it's complex to build, it's complex to sell, it's complex to market. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of challenges really across the entire yeah. life cycle yeah, on and kind it, of the enterprise side. 100%. And educating, right? Education yeah. is the first step of that. Like, there are so many stakeholders in that company. Which one has the, the ability to sign off on it? Yeah. Um, and can they, and if, what, what are their prerequisites to sign that off? And how do you get, how do you deliver the exact right message to the exact right people at the right time in the right way through the right <laughs> medium? That's all the, that's what we're doing all the time. Every account we work with, we're doing that all the time. It's like, how do you strategize here? How do you strategize? How do you strategize? Um, that's what it takes. That's what it takes to do enterprise. And, you know, really 80% of, of biz dev is still sitting on my shoulders, mm -hmm. right? It's still sitting on my shoulders. And. I'm, I'm looking to go and um, bring in some sales leadership to come in and support on that front very, very soon. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that founder-led sales is um, not only just important, I think it's almost crucial, especially in the early days, because you're, what you're searching for is product market fit, right? And it's very hard to not be in the weeds yourself, rolling up your sleeves, hire somebody to come in from like day one and just like be your salesperson because what you're doing is you're getting feedback, yeah. you know, from the market, you're understanding, you know, what are their challenges, you're seeing the different opportunities, like you guys have displayed, you know, multiple pivots over the years, yeah. you know, where that takes all of your attention and resources for the whole company. And so like, yeah. you need kind of that insight a little bit firsthand. And so I think it's one of the, that's one of the most valuable skills I think you learn as a founder is like, if you've never done sales, like get yeah. schooled up on it pretty quickly because yeah. I think that that's one of the ways that I think you can be a lot more successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, it's hard for any, anyone outside of the business to come in yeah. and start to sell, especially when you're figuring out what you're selling. Mm -hmm. It's hard, right? It's super tough. And I mean, one of my, one of my investor, um, board members, one of investment directors before was, you know, Adam, more sort of corporate mentality was adamant. You should bring a sales guy in early. You should bring a sales guy in early. And we, we brought one in early and inevitably didn't work out. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it got messy and so on, but <laughs> inevitably it didn't, work, <laughs> it didn't work out, but like, that's just part of it. Like, um, there was, there was no winning in that, in that setup and you feel bad. For, for for having brought them on and so on, but yeah, I I think I think from the outside in, if you haven't done startup before, you can look at uh, you can look at a business and say, hey, you just throw salespeople in and money starts, you know, contracts start flying out. But it's not it's not that simple. Like if you don't understand the business and the product, then you don't know when to time bringing in salespeople. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's not just salespeople. I mean, the same, that dynamic nature is the same for, like some people are built for it, some people are not, right? From developers through to, um, you know, even operations folks, like the, the bar is just very high 
when it comes to working in an early stage startup. Like if you're deficient in something, everyone will notice it. Yeah. And everyone will feel it. Uh, and then you have to find some way to address it. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful to say the team now is you know, f- fantastic. Um, but it hasn't been without, <laughs> without its, <laughs> its hiccups and, and lessons learned on and how to find, how to hire right, how to, how to, how to, how to you know, fire well as well. Um, yeah. A lot of challenges, man. Dude, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I'm super excited about your tech. Um, we got to get you guys on a DW Insight if you're not on there yet. So we'll, um, you guys can go check that out. Thanks for making the trip. I know you didn't make it just for me, but like I feel <laughs> I feel honored that you're, you you flew in. Um, yeah, love the conversation. So guys, if you if you like this, take two seconds, uh, leave us a rating and review, uh, share this with all your friends and your colleagues, and we will catch you guys on the next episode. Cut, 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 cut.